the glass ceiling. Want to break it? I do. The term glass ceiling came from a young woman at a telephone company. Her male bosses told her to look into why female employees lacked the skills, the temperament to advance. What was wrong with them? She dug into it and discovered, oh, the problem isn't them, it's you. You've created an invisible barrier to advancement. She called it the glass ceiling. 14 years later, in 1992, Carol Mosley Braun broke, shattered a glass ceiling. Look at the possibilities, not the limitations. Because if you look at the limitations, you will not try anything new. You'll intimidate yourself and you'll tell yourself no. And that is not how the world changes. She took her shot and became the first black woman to ever serve in the U.S. Senate. She is Senator number 1,807 and also the first. Welcome to Art of Power. I'm Artfei Shahani. Today, Carol Mosley Braun sees the possibilities, not the limitations. With this superpower, she seizes a seat in the U.S. Senate and gets blindsided. It's an inspiring, searing case of greatest strength, greatest weakness. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I do want to start with what I consider to be a pretty zany story about how you got into politics. Um, (laughs) You know what I'm about to share with you, but let let me just do the setup. Um, Your life and history as we know it is turned upside down because of this. Just listen closely. What did we just hear? You heard some bobblings. <laughs> <laughs> Explain the bobblings. Well, I live in a neighborhood that's surrounded by parks. And right up the street is Jackson Park. And Jackson Park has an active bird watching group. And they introduced me to bird watching. And it turned out the Chicago Park District decided to destroy the bobolings' habitat. And they were going to put in a golf driving range. And I was incensed by that. So I joined the people who were opposing and protesting. I mean, somewhere there's a picture of me with the sign that says, Park District, no, bobolings, yes. So <laughs> one of the people who was associated with the group came to me and said, oh, I, we think you'd be a good state representative. And I thought, oh, I don't know anything about politics. No, I don't think so. Mm. Why me? You know, Mm. I wasn't going to do it. And then this one guy who said to me, don't run. You can't possibly win. The blacks won't vote for you because you're not part of the Chicago machine. The whites won't vote for you because you're black. And nobody's going to vote for you because you're a woman. Mm. Okay, where do I sign up for this job? It was like, oh, no, (laughs) (laughs) I am not going to be put down uh, because I'm black and female and, 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 and not a politician. 
And so what motivated you was not the people who said you could do it, but the person who said you couldn't do it. Exactly. Hmm. That's awesome. That's twisted is what that is. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> I want to tell you a bit about Carol Mosley Braun. She graduated from the University of Chicago Law School and became a federal prosecutor. She and her then husband got pregnant. She decided to keep working through the end of her pregnancy, which is pretty unheard of at the time. I mean, people were not going in with their baby bumps. And after her son's birth, she decided to be a stay at home mom until Birdright catapulted her into politics. She won the campaign to become a state legislator, and then another campaign. And then there's a man named Clarence Thomas. Clarence Thomas, African-American man. He's nominated by George Bush to become a Supreme Court justice. And you don't like this man for his political stances. Why don't you like this man, just in terms of his politics? Well, the last part of it was important because I don't know him personally. I still don't. But it was his position on issues that I found offensive. And particularly since he was supposed to be taking the spot that had been held by Thurgood Marshall. Thurgood Marshall was the first ever African-American Supreme Court justice who'd served under Chief Justice Earl Warren, the Warren Court. And Thurgood Marshall and his activism and his political leanings had made my life path possible. I was in an interracial marriage and my marriage would have been a felony had it not been for Thurgood Marshall and what he did. I lived in an integrated neighborhood. That would not have been possible had it not been for the Warren Court. I was able to not have to sit on the back of the bus. Remember, I come up at a time when segregation was a very real reality for Black people in this country. Matter of fact, the story I like to tell is my little brother um, seeing a colored water fountain at the, at, the, at the train station. And my mother wouldn't let him drink out of it. And he threw himself on the floor in the middle of the train station and had a hissy fit. I want some colored water. I want some colored water. So I, I had experienced um, that kind of racial segregation. Take the fact that as a lawyer, I have this great respect for the rule of law. I have a great respect for the Supreme Court. And the idea that Thurgood Marshall would be replaced by the somebody who was coming from the entire opposite end of the intellectual world, was offensive to me. So she doesn't like Clarence Thomas. And then a controversy develops around him. An African-American woman named Anita Hill. My name is Anita F. Hill, and I am a professor of law at the University of Oklahoma. She steps up and says, this man you're nominating to the court, who barely has any experience as a judge, who's riding on the strength of his character, he sexually harassed me at work for a couple of years. He referred to the size of his own penis as being larger than normal, and he also spoke on some occasions of the pleasures he had given to women with oral sex. Anita Hill went to testify to the Senate. It would have been more comfortable to remain silent. I felt that I had to tell the truth. She was a black woman explaining herself to a body that is 98 white men and two white women. Does that in any way specifically offend you or touch you or get under your skin personally? I was horrified. You must understand, 
This is prior to the Me Too movement. So sexual harassment was not on the agenda. I was also a church lady. And the Black church stood with Clarence Thomas. And the, the, these ministers themselves did not uh, understand why Anita Hill was complaining. I got it. I understood exactly what she was saying. But my community was split on the issue. Her community was split on Clarence Thomas. So were the two senators in Illinois, both Democrats. One voted against the Thomas nomination. The other, Senator Alan Dixon, he supported Thomas, saying, well, the guy was never actually convicted of harassment. That means that Judge Thomas is entitled to a presumption of innocence. That support did not sit well with her. It was like, how can you do this? Well, he clearly thought he could. And I said, okay, fine. Using your position to do that. So let's just get you out of the position. (laughs) I mean, I had all the qualifications. I had the, I I didn't have any money to do it, but I had the background, I had life experiences to prepare me for being a senator. So I didn't see any reason why I couldn't. And back to the bottlings. I saw the possibilities and not the limitations. And I decided to go for it. Carol Mosley-Braun went for it. She decided to run for a U.S. Senate seat. She knew she had the skills and the temperament. The problem wasn't her. But unlike so many other Senate candidates, she was not a millionaire. It was so bad. At one point, I was ready to just throw in the towel because I had no money. I had no support to speak of. And even the Black community, the civil rights community, the fact of the matter is they had not signed on to me either because it was seen as such a long shot. And it's like, you know, why waste our vote on this person who can't win? There was one point we had exactly $100 in the bank account. Mm. And, you know, for a Senate mm. race, that's just unheard of. The money is not pouring in. And she knows this. Any serious political campaign takes a lot of money. And I was ready to quit. And as it turned out, a friend came had come in town and said, you know, I was just about to go home, but I'll, I'll stay here and um, help you with this campaign if you like. And so I said, well, I thank you very much. And I said, because I, I, tell you, I, I can't do this. It's just not working. Mm-hmm. You're talking about Gozi Matthews. I am. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. We're going to get to him in a bit. This guy she mentions is a really big deal in her political life and personal life. But first... Mosley Braun gains traction not by working the Chicago machine, the powerful political gatekeepers in her hometown. She appeals to women. The National Organization of Women endorsed her early. And she gets voters outside the city in what she calls Illinois' Deep South. It's an unlikely coalition. What prepared you to do that? You're feeling at ease with very different kinds of people. That struck me. Well, I have had a very eclectic background. Uh, Because my family was, um, because they considered themselves to be artists, I met and knew people from a lot of different walks of life and a lot of different kinds of people, Asian and Black and and Native American and male, I mean, you know, gay, you name it. I grew, that was how I grew up. And so I did not have any fixed idea in my head of which votes to go after. I just went after them all. Mm -hmm. My attitude was that one vote was equal to another vote. Mm -hmm. That seems like a huge part of the story, you know, and maybe because I identify with it, you know, 
<laughs> being comfortable with difference. Yes, exactly. And that's, that's so important because, again, every vote counts and every vote matters. It doesn't matter if it comes from a rich white guy or from a poor, you know, lesbian woman. People on your own campaign don't really think you're going to win the Democratic primary. Okay, you connected us with one of them, uh, John Rogers, longtime friend of yours, part of the campaign. And this is what he told us. (laughs) Well, I have to say, it's just impossible to say say no to Carol, whatever she'd like you to help with. You You just want to jump on the bandwagon, help her achieve her goals. And then to find out that we had won, it was just such an extraordinary moment. She was able to make magic happen. I did not expect it. What does that mean, make magic happen? Oh, uh, you know, nobody thought I had a chance in hell of winning. <laughs> I don't know if that was the magic. I think this based on the issues and based on my, my platform. And that's what that's what campaigns are supposed to be, I thought. Forgive me for being naive here, but I do. <laughs> If anything, that's my one criticism of where where our politics is gone. It's all personal, and it's all personality-driven and celebrity-driven. I started off trying to make a point about civil rights, and then it expanded into women's rights. And so between civil rights and women's rights, you've got a majority of the population, don't you? (laughs) You do. You do. (laughs) So... And it's an interesting point you're making. I'm listening to it. Like, part of the magic then is this was a time where talking about issues that mattered to people could actually get you votes. It's not magic. It's just focusing on on what matters to people. And and I think that's still going on. Frankly, I think Stacey Abrams down in Georgia Stacy has just gone back to that old-fashioned formula of talk to people about what they care about mm. and talk about their issues. And that, that is her magic. And quite frankly, I, you know, if I can take some tiny bit of credit for her getting that message, I'm, I'm glad to do it because I'll tell you something, that is the key to the future mm. for both parties. So it's really not magic. It's like the opposite of magic. Opposite of magic, exactly. She also had some luck. You know how minority candidates aren't supposed to run against each other because they'll split the colored vote? Well, in kind of the inverse of that, another different rich white guy entered the race. He and the incumbent, they split the white vote. And Carol Mosley Braun came out on top by about 50,000 votes. Sitting U.S. senators almost never get primaried, unseated by a newbie from their own party. Carol Mosley Braun's win shocked the political world, the world, and her inner circle. I was totally surprised when I walked into her hotel suite. It was something I will never, ever forget. When I think about that moment uh, in, you know, 1992, 
it reminds me of the excitement experienced more recently around, for example, the Democratic primary victory of Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, right? Yep. Explosion. Only, you know, she's the youngest person, youngest woman to go into the House of Representatives. You're the first Black woman to go into the Senate. And the excitement is like 10x. I mean, it is big. It is global. You become the most famous woman in America. Well, don't say that. That's just, that's just all that does is intimidate me. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> not, not intended to. Um, how did you feel that night? I was obviously very, I was overjoyed. And so everybody was just, it was a, this explosion of, of, of joy and disbelief. And, and you're right, it made me famous beyond my ability to handle it. And that takes us into another conversation. Because I was not expecting the celebrity and the fame that went with the whole organization. The celebrity part of it was the part that I was not prepared for. What do we learn? What should we learn from that stunning primary win? Look at the possibilities, not the limitations. Because if you look at the limitations, you will not try anything new. You'll intimidate yourself and you'll tell yourself no. And that is not how the world changes. The world changes because people decide to take a shot and to go for whatever it is they're interested in doing or they think they can do. And it's a choice. Yes. It's a personal choice. What do you mean? You have to decide how much abuse can you take, too. I mean, because it, you know... What was that old line? Power yields nothing except to a demand. It mm. never has and never will. And that's true. It doesn't. So you have to be prepared to make the demand and not talk yourself out of it because others will tell you, you can't, this demand is unreasonable. This is not going to work. This is not sensible. You know, have you lost your mind? <laughs> They'll go with every other reason why, why you shouldn't do whatever it is you think you can Carol Mosley-Braun carried the momentum of her primary into the general election to become the first Black senator in the Democratic Party, the first Black woman senator in American history. It was crazy. It was overwhelming. The woman I had, the press secretary at the time, had a nervous breakdown. She had a meltdown. And she went and watched herself in the room and wouldn't talk to anybody. So I should have known that I was up again. After the break, how that meltdown may have been an omen. What Senator Carol Mosley Braun was up against. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. When I think about that journey of yours, the image that comes to mind is like, you know, this person who's slaying dragons and there are so many dragons coming at you. It's hard to know which ones are the real threats and which ones to slay at any given moment. Is that, is that a fair metaphor? That's actually a very good metaphor. I wish I had thought of that. (laughs) (laughs) She was up against a lot in the Senate and in the media. First, the Senate. 
She grabbed a seat on the very powerful Finance Committee, which handles taxes, trade, money. She's the first woman to ever sit on that committee, and she told me that one of her biggest accomplishments wasn't even something she created, it was something she was able to stop. They were trying to put a 20% co-payment on mammograms, and that was a 20% tax on women's health, in my opinion. And I remember raising my hand in the meeting and saying, guys, you know, you may not have to have breasts that have to be concerned about, but this is something that affects every woman who lives in your state. And you could see the light bulbs going off. And again, that that's the value of diversity in all of these uh, environments, because you bring a different set of life experiences and you can see things that other people do, don't see. They weren't trying to be mean to their constituents. It like literally just didn't occur to them. It didn't occur to them. So I think that I was able to make a difference um, by bringing a different perspective to financial issues. By being in the room. By, just by being in the room. That's right. That's a huge role to play, right? <laughs> being the woman in the room. Your generation came along after a lot of these battles have been fought. I was part of the generation of women who were tr- trying to solo it. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you're not only going to be in the room, but you've got to be willing to speak up and to, to share your perspective and not just take up space. And so I would, I would um, speak up for women and for Black people in the rooms in which I was. My point was, otherwise, why does it matter for you that you're there? Another major battle Mosley Braun fought, welfare reform. One important piece of background here, when she was running for office, her critics went after her. Her mom, actually, an elderly woman on Medicaid, she got a small inheritance. Then instead of paying taxes on it, she gave it to her kids to repay an old debt. Chicago newsrooms, they pounced. And welfare queen imagery, that made it into the coverage. Is it a question of family finances, or is it much more? At issue, the way Braun handled $29,000 inherited by her invalid mother. Uh, Some would suggest that it gives the reason that people may need not to vote for a black woman. Mosley Braun says she could not shake off this welfare queen image in the Senate, particularly when she was debating welfare reform. That bill was a dramatic cutting of benefits for poor and working class families. She was against it, and she said as much on the Senate floor. It didn't occur to me until much later that even though I was talking about welfare, what people were seeing was a welfare mother standing on the Senate floor saying, where's mine? You know, they, they, they couldn't hear what I had to say because I... They weren't seeing a Chicago law graduate They were not seeing all that. They were seeing a welfare mother saying, where's mine? Hmm. And that, of course, was not the point I was making uh, at all, uh, but... Again, that's through my eyes. Uh, you have to start off looking at how are you being seen by, you know, what are the, what are the, what are the vulnerabilities? What does the society say about you? Hmm. If you take the stereotypes having to do with Black people and put them on a list, and then you take the stereotypes that have to do with women and put that on a list, what you've got uh, are, the frankly, the basis upon which I was vulnerable. And And... What's the lesson there in power? I think the lesson is that you figure out what's in the culture. Because again, culture precedes politics. Culture precedes everything. Hmm. So if you start off and take a look at what's, what are the cultural norms that uh, you're up against? 
And those become your vulnerabilities. This point blows my mind. I've heard the saying, politics is downstream of culture. But I didn't really get what it meant in practical terms. Here, she was explaining it. When you step into a public position, you gotta scan the stereotypes that are out there about your various identities and assume someone is going to use those obvious tropes to take you down. When you see so strongly through your own eyes that you have to develop the muscle of getting better at seeing yourself through others' eyes? Yes, I've had to work on that. I'm still working on it. (laughs) You have to be able to see what other people see. And I'm not the best at that. Mm -hmm. I I cite Kamala. She's much better at navigating. She's navigated some waters, some shoals that I, you know, went around on. And precisely because she does a better job with presenting herself in a way that people won't respond to her as a woman of color or even as a woman, first response to her is first as senator, then as vice president. Mm-hmm. Vice President Kamala Harris was only the second Black female senator in U.S. history, following in Mosley Braun's footsteps. As senator, Carol Mosley Braun experienced a level of scrutiny most of us never have or will particularly around her love life. Remember that guy, Hosey Matthews, I said we'd be getting back to? I want to talk now about the man you brought up, and I said, let's save him for later. And you you allowed me to do that. Okay. He was your campaign manager. He became your boyfriend, later your fiance. The night you got elected, okay, and the world is watching, taking in this extraordinary victory, in your speech, you refer to him as your Quote, knight in shining armor. What does that mean? Remember the day I described you when I was running around ready to quit? That was the day that Holsey decided to come to Chicago. He was on his way back to South Africa, and he decided he would, he would not go home. He'd rather stay here in the United States and help me win a Senate race. And he did. He managed and organized Uh, the campaign in ways that, frankly, I would not have been able to do. He had the national experience that I didn't have. He knew the people who had supported Jesse Jackson's presidential race. I didn't know any of those people. So the fact of the matter is that he had been in some rooms that I I had no idea even existed. Hence, knight in shining armor. Right. Um, (laughs) It's a very heavy suit to wear. Matthews and Mosley Braun become the focus of a huge scandal. He gets accused of sexually harassing multiple women. She, upon hearing that, hires a law firm to investigate. Their findings are inconclusive. On the one hand, they say, not a single woman they interviewed verified the allegations. On the other hand, the investigators could not reach every potential victim. They did conclude Matthew's management style was, quote, autocratic. Mosley Braun read the report as vindication of him. 
And she was suspicious of the story. It was just too perfect, the perfect scandal. The whole thing of sexual harassment was almost, they wanted to make the irony, the irony of the person who got elected because of sexual harassment by Clarence Thomas is now sexual harassment as an issue in her own backyard. Um, and so, you know, I just thought it was just, it was too facile by half. And frankly, I know the reporter who started the ball rolling on that, you know, thought she was being cute. It wasn't, um, it wasn't cute at all. It was very hurtful, very destructive, and just bad. So you didn't believe it? I, it wasn't a matter of not believing it. No, I didn't. I didn't. I, not a much matter of taking up for him at all. Because quite frankly, if he, you know, he was a jerk, he was a jerk. It's just that simple. She felt the media was playing games with her, ones they would not have played with a white man. And here is some food for thought. At the exact same time Mosley Braun was engulfed in scandal, presidential candidate Bill Clinton got accused of having an extramarital affair. It cost him pretty much nothing politically. The burden of cleaning it up, in fact, fell to his wife, Hillary Rodham Clinton. She got dolled up and went before cameras as if to suggest her looks were the culprit. I'm sure you can think of other examples of man behaves badly and woman's gotta pay. Mosley Braun felt protective of her inner circle. It was just so unfair. Hmm. What they were doing to him, you're right, was focused on me. But the reality was, bad enough you start off with my mother, and then you go from my mother to my fiancé, and it's going to destroy all these people around me as a way of getting at me. What's the lesson you take from this? You can't save everybody. You can't save every situation. You know, there's some hits you're going to have to be able to take and just take them and keep on stepping. Mosley Braun was in the Senate for one term. She lost re-election. During that campaign, many, including a Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist for the Chicago Tribune, begged her, please break up with your boyfriend. She didn't. Was it worth it? Well, you know, it's hard to, hard, you have to ask me that when I get closer to my deathbed. Uh, <laughs> uh, that depends on whether or not you think of getting to the Senate mattered, because I think it did matter, and I would not have been able to get to the Senate without his help. I would not have been able to, to do it. The most dramatic intervention Senator Carol Mosley Braun made in the Senate, it's one that reverberates today. It has to do with the Confederate flag. Every seven years, the Daughters of the Confederacy, a group dedicated to commemorating Confederate Civil War veterans, they'd come along to renew a patent on the flag. They needed Senate approval. I spoke up in the committee and said, this is outrageous. This flag is inflammatory. I said, you can't do this. She won that battle in committee, but then another senator, Jesse Helms, he brought it to the floor anyway. I hope the Senate will set the record straight and restore the patent to these gentle ladies. That this guy was trying to bring it back on the floor was kind of an underhanded uh, blow. He was running circles around you. Yes. Mm-hmm. But I, I guess because he thought, you no, know, here's a little black child who's new to the Senate 
and he had as much all the seniority in the world, they thought he could do it. Mosley Braun tried to table the amendment, which would have effectively killed it. But when the votes were tallied, she lost. 52 to 48. So she escalated. I don't know, maybe this is just my day to get to talk about race. She didn't let it go. She began a filibuster. I've got to tell you, this vote is about race. Literally standing up and speaking on end. It is about racial symbols. Until others would hear her. about the single most painful episode in American history. It got raw. I have to, on many occasions, as the only African American here, constrain myself to be calm, to talk about these issues in very intellectual, non-emotional terms. That is part and parcel of my daily existence. I say to you that it is an outrage. It is an absolute outrage that this body would, would adopt a symbol of this point of view. I have to stand here till this room freezes over. I'm not going to see this amendment put on this legislation. I'm not going to, I don't want to yield the floor right now because I don't know what will happen next. <laughs> Her words worked. She didn't just take up space. She moved, maybe guilted, another senator into action. It was a very unexpected development. I come from a family deeply rooted in the Confederacy. Alabama Senator Howard Heflin. We live in a world today where symbols do mean a great deal. We must get racism behind us. Therefore, I will support uh, a reconsideration of this. Thank you very much, Senator Heflin. How did you feel when you saw that senator from Alabama, stand up and support you? I was grateful to him. You know, I'm saying it from the perspective of a white male Southerner. And that made a difference. And that was one of the other lessons I learned, is that sometimes it's the messenger that gets in the way of the message. And so with me, um, uh, there were some issues that I almost couldn't talk about. But then it's the lesson there, well, don't speak because you're the wrong messenger or speak anyway no, speak and anyway. someone will hear the message. <laughs> You've got to be able to look yourself in the mirror and be comfortable with your service on this planet. Any of you managed to get into a room where you didn't belong? You broke the glass ceiling and then to fit, you kept quiet. Senator Carol Mosley Braun pushed herself, the single senator of color alongside her white colleagues. She was benching a thousand. On the symbolic Confederate flag patent? Well, after her filibuster, the Senate voted again, this time by a vote of 75 to 25. The patent failed. She won. In terms of long-term impact, okay, I mean, it's it's really, it's an extraordinary thing. I mean, it, I was thinking about it earlier today. Like, it's like, the amazing thing about being the first, it, it's such, it's such a powerful identity, right? I mean... I don't know you. We've never met. We have no relationship. And yet I feel so much for you. When I hear your name, a smile comes to my face, right? 
That's well, and, and that's true for you. a lot of people. I'm, I, you know, it's, I'm actually not even trying to flatter you. I'm just sort of sharing a statement of fact, right? It's well, and, and let me say this also: um, the fact of the matter is, somebody's got to do it, right? So you've got to have a pioneer of some sort in just about every environment, and 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 it takes a no small amount of bravery to be that pioneer. But if you have a chance to do it, it's really cowardly for you not. So you just got to go up forward and, and do the best you can do with trying to contribute as, as much as you can contribute. Why haven't you written a memoir yet? Because I don't want to write a book because, you know, everybody will take it apart. <laughs> mm, I pre-order. I'm just saying. <laughs> Thank you. My lessons from Senator Carol Mosley Braun, whom, by the way, became an ambassador later. So she's technically ambassador. One, if you can see yourself clearly and not internalize society's low expectations of you, you can rise. Two, decide how much abuse you can take. Being first is a deeply lasting identity with high upfront costs. The glass ceiling, when broken, cuts. Three, And this one's not from her. It's from me. The way we remember a person can change over time. Senator Carol Mosley Braun, a quarter century later, I believe we are finally ready for her to put down her shield and celebrate her battles. The battles she fought for us. This episode of Art of Power was produced by Justin Bull, our intern, Hina Srivastava, and me, Arthi Shahani. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. Special thanks to the history makers, Agate Publishing and WTTW for research assistance. A bit of music in this episode licensed via Blue Dot Sessions. Okay, now's the part where I ask you a tough question. Do you like this episode enough to share it? If the answer is yes, do it now. Please tell your friends and family. Your recommendation means way more than any ad from us. You have the power. And also, subscribe to Art of Power on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And lastly, text me what you think, who you want to hear from. I'm at 917-708-5139. On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Arthi411. I want to hear from you. That's it. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.